check out my new book, Coping Courageously, a heart-centered guide for navigating a loved one's illness without losing yourself. It's appropriate for you as a clinician, for your patients, and for anyone you know who has a seriously ill loved one or an aging parent. Check it out and tell a friend. Welcome to the Integrative Palliative Podcast. I'm Dr. Delia Caramonti, an integrative palliative medicine physician. If you are a physician or other healthcare provider passionate about taking care of people with serious or chronic illness, you are in the right place. Our motto is whole person care for people with serious illness using all the tools that work. Welcome integrative palliative people. We provide whole person care for people with serious illness using all the tools that work. We want to enjoy our work. We want to help our patients feel better. And today we're going to talk about eight mistakes that people make when managing their patient's pain. So first, let's just talk about pain for a second. Pain is significantly more than just nociception, meaning it's not just like there's a tack in your foot sending a signal to your brain that allows you to perceive pain. That's not how it works. Pain is a subjective perception that's affected by emotions, genetics, social connections, the context in which we feel the pain, and there are inhibitors and enhancers of that pain that can make us feel worse or better that have nothing to do with medications. So essentially, the brain receives a sensation, and then the brain decides if it hurts. So the things that can impact that include the meaning that we make of it. So um, women who are post-mastectomy and have significant anxiety have more pain than women who have had a mastectomy and have less anxiety. If you fell off a ladder and now can't work, when you have a level five out of 10 pain, that pain brings these thoughts to mind of, oh my God, I'm a loser. My life is over. I'm fighting with my wife all the time. We're not having sex anymore. Everything's a disaster. That person is going to have pain that is out of control. On the other hand, if you just did your first marathon yesterday and you feel a lot of pain today, when you get out of the chair and you feel that sensation, what goes through your head is, yeah, I did it. Wow, I'm tough. I made it. It was worth it. So the whole perception of pain is different based on the meaning. And part of why we need to know that as clinicians is that we can sometimes impact how people perceive what's going on for them. So for example, if we do an MRI for somebody who has back pain and we say, oh my gosh, your spine is a mess. That's one of the worst MRIs I've ever seen. We just stimulated the nocebo response, which is the negative component of the placebo response. We just made it harder to treat that person's pain. The other thing that is interesting is that we can have a pain memory. So we know that you can have phantom pain after you have an amputation, but people who have a lot of pain before they have an amputation will end up having more pain phantom pain in the amputated part that is now gone and shouldn't hurt. But the brain remembers that that part used to hurt. And so it still perceives pain at a higher level than if that part is gone and there wasn't significant pain beforehand. So there are a lot of pieces to managing pain that are not just about what opiate do you choose. 
So the eight mistakes that people make when they're managing people's pain are, number one, they don't define each pain separately. So we see this in the hospital all the time. There'll be a report on the chart that says the patient's pain is a seven. But when you go talk to them, they have different pains. Which pain is a seven? It could be that they're having surgical pain, that they have chronic back pain, that they have an infection pain. So we can't until we're certain that there's literally only one pain, just say the patient's pain is. We need to be writing down, asking about it and writing down every pain that the patient has and doing a whole pain history on each one separately. So we can't just say, well, you know, what makes your pain better? What makes it worse? If we haven't said which pain we're talking about. So we may say, okay, for your chronic back pain that you've had forever, how bad is that one? How bad is it at its worst? How bad is it at its best? So that's important too. And then how bad is it most of the time? So anytime we're asking people to quantify their pain, we want to know those three things. How bad is it at its worst? What's the best it ever gets? And then what is it most of the time? So that's for your back pain. Okay, what about your ankle pain? Let's do that same thing about your ankle pain. So when we're writing down a pain history, we should have different sections for each one of those pains. And so for each of them, we're going to say, where is it? How bad is it in those three ways that we just talked about? What relieves it? What exacerbates it? And what associated things come along with it? Like my back pain, I'm used to that. I can deal with that one. But when my leg starts to hurt because I know I have cancer, it really brings on my anxiety. Okay, that's number one. So number one mistake is that people don't define each pain separately. Number two mistake is that people don't figure out what kind of pain they're dealing with. So there's all different kinds of pain. There's somatic pain, which tends to be tissue pain, injury pain. There's neuropathic pain. There's visceral pain, which sometimes people forget about. And that is treated differently and it feels different. There's central sensitization, which is when the brain, the nervous system, turns up the sensitivity to perception of a part of the body that has been having significant pain and the brain is worried about it. That's treated differently. And so it's important for us to know, is there a central sensitization component to somebody's pain? And then also, is it total pain? Meaning, is there emotional distress that's contributing or spiritual distress that's contributing. Because if we miss that and we just try to give an opiate medication, but we miss that there's a huge emotional component to their pain, we just won't help people feel better. Okay. Number three mistake that people make is they don't think about the muscular system. So often if something is going on that is distressing to the body, the muscles around that part of the body will tense up, they'll splint to try to protect it. So sometimes people can have an injury or a surgical procedure, something that is healing, but while it's healing, the muscles around it contract and splint. And so then even when the initial injury or wound is healed, the pain may still be there. But we may assume, oh, well, now it must be neuropathic pain, or you must be, you know, escalating the pain that you're having, or oh, you must be very emotional about it, maybe it's total pain. But it may just be that the person is splinting, and it's really a muscular issue. And the reason that that's important is that the things that can help that are manual type therapies, like 
massage, perhaps chiropractic, acupuncture, heat. So we always want to think about, is there a muscular component to what's going on here? Even if that has nothing to do with a primary problem. Okay, so that's number three. Number four mistake that people make in treating pain is that they don't seek out and treat associated depression. So sometimes you might think, well, you know, of course the person's bummed out because they're in pain all the time and it's difficult to live like that, which is true. But if somebody has uncontrolled depression, the chance that you're going to be able to treat their severe or chronic pain is slim. So it's extremely important to actively seek out an assessment for depression. Don't wait for the person to say they're depressed. Seek out an assessment for depression. And if you see that there is depression, make sure that you treat the depression as you're trying to treat the pain. Number five, mistake that people make is they don't explore spiritual distress. So it's maybe easier if a person's crying to say, oh, you must be anxious or you must be sad, you must have emotional distress. Often people don't spontaneously share their spiritual distress, but it can certainly make their pain harder to treat. And so spiritual distress, of course, can take all different forms, but it can include things like, oh, no, I now have a life-limiting illness and I did a bad thing and I'm worried about what's going to happen to me after death. Or how could this thing have happened to me? Why didn't God protect me? I, I had this relationship with God and now I'm not sure if I do. Or I'm not thinking about this the way my spiritual community is and I feel um, that I can't be honest with my community, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So make sure when you're assessing somebody with pain that you check out, are they experiencing spiritual distress? Number six mistake that people make when they're managing pain is that they don't ask about and treat, if necessary, emotional trauma. Lots and lots of people have past emotional traumas, including childhood traumas, that can make pain much harder to treat, even if the pain has literally nothing to do with the trauma. Things that cause pain and things that bring you to a palliative care provider can reactivate old emotional trauma because emotional trauma puts the nervous system in a state of feeling under threat. And when someone tells you that you have a potentially life-limiting illness or you have an injury or you need a surgery or you need chemotherapy, that also brings on a neurologic sense of threat that I'm not safe. And so that can reactivate old traumas. And if you don't address that, you can make it much harder to treat pain. So make sure you seek out and treat if necessary emotional trauma. Number seven mistake that people make is that they don't check for central sensitization and provide pain education around central sensitization. So in upcoming weeks, we'll talk more about central sensitization. But essentially, the idea is that the nervous system is turned up too high, too sensitively around a particular part of the body, because there has been an ongoing pain circumstance that has made the nervous system worried and not want to miss something going on in that part of the body. So central sensitization is a hypersensitive nervous system. And just increasing the opiates, for example, not only may not help, but even it can enhance that. So 
there are other things, including mind body interventions, cognitive behavioral things, meditation, etc., that can help to decrease the neurologic sense of threat, which helps to decrease central sensitization. And even just teaching patients about this, about their nervous system and how it's turned up a little high, but because of neuroplasticity, we can turn it back down again. All of those things can help decrease central sensitization and decrease pain. So that's number seven mistake people make is that they don't check for central sensitization. And number eight mistake that people make is that they don't create an integrative treatment plan, meaning conventional modalities, but also complementary modalities. And we're going to talk specifically about that next week. So just to recap, eight mistakes that people make when they're managing pain. Number one, they don't define each pain separately. Number two, They don't figure out what kind of pain the person has and target the intervention to that kind of pain, meaning somatic pain, neuropathic pain, visceral pain, central sensitization, or total pain. Number three, they forget to think about the muscular system and splinting. Number four, they don't seek out or treat associated depression. Number five, they don't seek out and address spiritual distress. Number six, they don't ask about and treat emotional trauma. Number seven, they don't check for central sensitization and provide pain education. And number eight, they don't create an integrative treatment plan using all the tools. So we're going to talk more about that next week, an integrative treatment plan. And I thank you so much for joining us. If you like what you heard, please follow, please give a like, and please tell your friends. Thanks so much. Thank you so much for listening to the Integrative Palliative Podcast brought to you by the Institute for Integrative Palliative Medicine. If you liked what you heard, please give us a like, follow us, tell your colleagues, and join our community at www.tiipm.org. See you next week.